The Lord bless you. We're going to read from the word of the Lord. Let's, let's read from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and we're going from verses 16 to 30. It's Luke chapter 4 and verses 16. We're starting at verse 16 to 30. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was with the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and setting I set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said is not this Joseph's son and he said to them doubtless you will quote to me the proverbs physician heal yourself what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well and he said truly I said to you no prophet is acceptable in his hometown but in truth I tell you that were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zareth in the land of Sodom to a woman who was a widow and there many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and alone or sorry and none of them uh, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, in, and all of the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. And let the Lord bless that word to us. I wonder if I ask the question here today of you, um, and, and this is a good one because I think this would get, get you all thinking about this, but if you were to give me a one-word picture of somebody in your family who is most annoying, and I'm not asking you to shout these out, by the way, but I'm just wanting you to think about this. Someone who really irks you, or really annoys you a lot, someone in the family that you would prefer not to be with, what would that one-word picture be? Um, and I did a wee bit of research this with some of my colleagues when it's hard to get on with your family, and it really can be, but I came up with some, words, some spellings are bad on this here, forgive me for it, I did my best on it, but if you look at some of them you'll see Sponger, 
one guy said to me, his sister was married to this guy and he never works and of course they are expected to look after him so he called him the sponger. Um, some guy said one of his family members was very tight. Another one said very nosy. Um, another one said unloving, an upstart. Somebody likes to start nothing but trouble in the family. A gossip. POTUS. Now I like the POTUS. <laughs> Does anybody know what a POTUS is? Gonna pray for you. <laughs> Gonna pray for you. POTUS is one of those things that when you don't have a doctor like this man sitting over here, it's a bread POTUS. Years ago I had this infection. And my mum says, right, you gotta get a POTUS. What on earth is that, mum? Piece of bread dipped into this really hot water and a bandage around it, and it's left there for days and it sucks all the poison out. Um, so if somebody said to me, yep, ah, I've got this guy in our family, he's a POTUS, it'd suck everything out of you, honestly, it's unreal. And the winger, yep, there's always a winger in every family, isn't it? When you think about it, there's people in your family you would prefer not to be with. And it amazes me sometimes when you meet people and they'll tell you about their family members. Now, I love Max Lucado. Um, Max Lucado um, has this brilliant book, and I've I had it in the house for years. I've read it, and I read it again there. And this inspired me a great deal to, even, to think about this. He says it's like crammed in an elevator. You're jammed into an elevator, and people are thrust together by chance on a short journey, saying little as possible. The only difference is you'll eventually get off the elevator and never see the folks again. Not so with the difficult relative, the family reunions, the Christmas, the Thanksgiving, the weddings, the funerals. They'll be there. How true that really is. You always go to these events, you see the people that you prefer not to be with. (coughs) Excuse me. It's a funny old thing, families. I think... When I was reading this, a lady called Joyce Landoff, um, and her in her book, which is called Irregular People, she tells of a woman in her thirties who had learned that she needed to get a mastectomy, and she and her mother seldom communicated. So her daughter was very apprehensive about telling her. And one day, she invited her over for lunch to the house, and they were sitting over lunch, and she said to her mother, "I've learned that I have to have a mastectomy." Her mother was deadly silent about it. The daughter asked her, did you hear what I said? The mother nodded her head. And then she said calmly, in a very dismissive way, she said, you know, your sister has the best recipe for chicken enchiladas. What do you do in a situation like that? Family sometimes can be quite hard to get on with. And they can be quite distant. And sometimes you get on better with people outside of your family than you do with family members. I have to say, I have a really good family Um Good family background. My, my brothers are brilliant. I have five brothers. One of them died of cancer. And uh, my four other brothers, we get together. Believe me, it's a night's crack. Ah, <laughs> oh boy, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's rough. <laughs> Especially when there, is, when there is Jenga. I mean, Jenga causes major problems in our household. Uh, it really is. The, the fun is amazing. And we're talking about going away on a wee trip. We're going to do a little road trip, all four of us there. Together, five of us together, sorry. I'm the youngest of all five of them. Um, and uh, we have great time together. So I love my brothers to bits, I really do. But it's good when you've got a backup with your family, and uh, families are very important, but I also know families who don't get on at all. Believe it or not, Jesus had a family. And when we read this today, you've read, even if you read in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, to talk a little bit more about his family. But it may surprise you that he did have a family. 
But Jesus brought about peace to a family, and that was his own. But it took a little while. He had brothers and he had sisters. Mark and Market writes in chapter three. It says Jesus is uh, is just the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters um, are all there. And you see Jesus. Well, and this, the part of the scripture we read today, he went back for a visit to his hometown. Now everybody's excited about this because one of their own has come back to Nazareth. They've heard much about him, and much of Jesus' ministry was around Galilee which is in that particular area. And here he is back in town, and he is in the synagogue. And when he gets into the synagogue, he has handed a scroll. And in the scroll, he begins to read. Now, it's quite interesting because our Bible has it all in chapter and verses. The scrolls had none of those. But Jesus opens this up, and he begins to read, unbelievably, from Isaiah 61. Um, gosh, I hope I have that up there somewhere. I'm sure I have. And they're all amazed. So they're, they're all saying, this guy's amazing. How on earth can he do all this? How does he know all this stuff? And so he reads it all out. And he begins to scroll it all, roll it all back up and give it back to the attendant. And um, there's it there. Um, uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 18 to 21, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim the freedom of the prisoners, the recovery of the sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now that's word for word out of Isaiah 61. And here he is reading the very prophecy that Isaiah made about him to the people of Nazareth. Now everybody's amazed by this. It's incredible that he opens up the scroll, and there he is reading this very... Um, piece of scripture that r relates to him. But do you notice in the scripture they do this one thing? And here, listen, you'll understand this very, very well. They upbraid him, don't they? They give him his pedigree. How many times have you heard people give people their pedigree? Oh my goodness, that, that really cracks me up. When you're sitting with someone that say, here, look at them. Look at the demons over there. They really think they are something. You see her mother. I can tell you something about her mother and see her father. And they go right back to generations. Honestly, it really is the most cruel thing when you hear people giving somebody their pedigree. It really is a terrible thing. And here they are listening to Jesus and saying, hold on a second, isn't he the carpenter's son? That's Mary's, Mary's boy, isn't it? That's not who that is. I mean, they used to, I mean, his father come to my house and done some work for me. And, you know, he did a bit of carpentry around the house. And sure, Jesus was with him sometimes. Who is he to bring all this kind of knowledge to us? And that's kind of where it goes wrong, you see. So here they are. They're, they're giving him his pedigree. And he's looking through all of this and he's saying to them, well, listen, I'll tell you what. This is me. I'm the Messiah. And everything just goes to bananas. It just goes to pieces. <coughs> he tells them that he is the prophet. And he says, here I am. And I'm, I'm a prophet without honor in my own hometown. And that causes big problems for him because they begin to get really ticked off by this. They grab him, they bring him out onto the street, they take him right over to the edge of a cliff. Now you can imagine what that must be like for him. You can imagine what that must have been like for Jesus' brothers and his sisters and their family. How much of them do you think would have been very embarrassed by that? Well, they were incredibly embarrassed. You can imagine the family saying to their mother, 
Go talk to him. Tell him to stop this. This is nonsense. Imagine him telling people he's the Messiah. Mommy came from this town. You know, he's, he's your son. He's our brother. Why would he be walking around saying stuff like this? That's crazy. It's nuts. You can imagine what it's like whenever they bring Jesus to the cliff. You'd like to think that his brothers jumped into the front and said, whoa, whoa, hold on, get lads. Wait a minute. Whoa, stop right there. You're not doing this. This is our brother. This is not happening. But they didn't. They didn't stand up for him. There's nothing like your brother standing up for you. It's incredible. I'm the youngest, but there's a brother, and he's four and a half years older than I am, my brother David. And him and I fought like cat and dog. My mother banned us from looking at each other. That's how bad it was. <laughs> if my mother saw me looking at him, though, honestly, I got slapped. You know, it really is. That's how bad it was. We really tortured the living daylights out of each other. And all I can say is, he was allowed to hit me and thump me and do all sorts of things, and he did, believe me. He did a lot of things to me, I can tell you. We talk about this quite often when we laugh about it, you know, but in them days it wasn't so funny, but because uh, I used to creel him sometimes. I hit him in the back of the neck one day with a brush. I thought it knocked him out. <laughs> <clears throat> but we're in the cinema one night over in the AV in Banbridge, and I'm sitting, uh, the first time I'm allowed to go out on my own with get on a bus with my friends, about 15, about 14, 15 at the time, and there I am, sitting in the cinema, all my buddies all beside me, about, about 10 of us were all sitting there, all in the seat, and the show is about to begin, and I'm looking around to see who's there, as I normally do, and I eyeball this guy in front of me, he's sitting with his girlfriend, and the guy says, what are you looking at? You got a problem? He said a whole lot of other words, and I can't, can't say them. On the same row, I didn't even realise this, but my brother is sitting down the other end of the row with his girlfriend. And he jumps up and he shouts at the guy. He says, Oi! It's my wee brother you're talking to there. <laughs> my brother had a reputation for fighting. He was pretty good at it, apparently. Well, I have the opposite because I've never had a fight in my life. But he was pretty good at it. And people knew his reputation. The guy, his face drained white. He goes... Oh, Spot, he says, I'm really sorry. I didn't realise that was your brother. Ah, uh, oh, no problem. He says, yeah, it is. And sit down and shut up. <laughs> I'm sitting in the back seat going, <laughs> you're on, eh? It's my brother there. Because <laughs> I was sitting petrified because I thought I was going to get punched, you know, going to get my lights punched out. There's nothing like it when your family stands for you. Nothing like it. There's nothing like it when you're down and you're in trouble and... You've got people calling, calling round and looking after you. My middle brother, Colin, is the guy. We, we call him the curer. He's the curber. He's the guy that looks after all of us. He's the guy that used to look after me when I was a baby. So him and I are very close as well. But we call him the curber because he's the guy that looks after every one of us. When we're sick, you can guarantee he'll be at the front door to see what he can do to help you out. There's nothing like your family who'll look after you. But here Jesus was alone. Now you think to yourself, your family's not going to jump in and help you out. You're thinking, you get pretty annoyed about that. You could be very insulted by that. You could say to yourself, well, that's the last time I'm going to speak to them. I'm going to have nothing to do with them. And here Jesus is being brought right up to the very edge of this cliff. In this piece of scripture, he's told them he's the Messiah. He said, today I have made history. You are at the very center of history today because here I am telling you I am the Messiah and I'm here to help the downtrodden, the poor. I'm here to make sure that the blind can see. It's incredible. These people knew about the healings that he did. They knew about the healings. 
They knew about all the great stuff that he did. They wanted to see him doing healings in the town. But when all this stuff kicked off, when he said he was the Messiah, that changed everything. What does Jesus do? Nothing. He didn't demand that they agree with him. He didn't sulk. He didn't go off in a bit of a tantrum. He didn't try to control them. He just walked through the crowd and away from the village, away from the town completely. Now, he did some miracles at that time. He only did a few. But where the Holy Spirit isn't welcome, God can't do a work. Where the Holy Spirit is not welcome, God can do nothing. I don't know if you've ever heard of the 1859 revival that came across Ireland. It was massive. It was the most amazing thing that ever hit Ireland. Now, we can see for ourselves what it was like. And when you look around towns like Coleraine, Ballymena, Portadown, um, it hit all these places massively. It started in Kells, and it just went out from Kells right out. People would be hit by, all of a sudden, by the Holy Spirit just descending on them. They would be dropping on the street on their knees and praying, Lord, come into my life. They'd be in bed and, and they'd be waking up and they'd be going to look for a Bible to read because the Holy Spirit just endowed them. Before that, it was a nation who didn't care about God. You've got to remember it was the famine before that. Just before that, the famine had come and it really was bad. People were dying. People were leaving Ireland in their, in their thousands. They believe that the 1859 revival brought about 100,000 converts at the time. When you look about um, the whole of the areas around, like Portadown, for instance, if you look at some of the churches around Portadown that arrived out of the 1859 revival, and I was reading about some of this, and it's interesting, the former church that I used to go to on Thomas Street Methodist, they had a big meeting in the field right beside it while it was being built, and converts were coming to the Lord. They had a meeting beside the train station in Portadown where 1,500 people attended. Imagine them that in a field and people were preaching and some people were coming to the Lord. It was massive. But the problem was some towns and villages closed their door to it. Would you believe when I read about this and I found this quite surprising, but Moira closed their door to the 1859 revival. Hence the churches never grew. You didn't see big massive churches in the place. They're all small. I was trying to find out about Tandergee here, but it was interesting to find out that the Baptist church around the corner was built in 1863, just after the revival. They went to see um, the Duke of Manchester, who lived in Tandergee Castle. That was the Mandeville family. And he granted them that ground for £1.50 a year ground rent, would you believe, in 1863. The big Methodist church in the area just before that was Tandergee Methodist, by the way. It would have been considered the, the, the mother church in around Portadown area. When the Holy Spirit is not welcomed, then God just disappears. And that's it. And here Jesus has walked into his hometown and everybody's excited to see him and then they're not excited to see him. In fact, they're, they're seething. And he only can do some things and then he has to leave. But his family are in bits because they are really embarrassed. And why do you think that's caused that? Why do you think they're in that place? Unbelief. Unbelief. 
You know the biggest problem we have today in the world is unbelief. You know something, faith is the most incredible, powerful thing you can ever have in your life. But so is unbelief. It's a credible and a very credible, powerful thing too because it does horrible things. Only have to look at Noah. Look at humanity, what happened to humanity because of their unbelief. You look at Moses, you look at Aaron. Oh boy, thousands of people died because of their unbelief. And the children of Israel. They didn't get into the promised land because of their unbelief. And when they did get into the promised land, they had major problems with unbelief. And you can go through the Bible and you can see many characters within it who had the same problem. But the world suffers a great deal now of unbelief. Jesus' family suffered from unbelief. I was reading this morning there on Facebook that in New Zealand, in their parliament, they are now going to take the name Jesus out of the prayers that they have. Because they want to reach out to other people. They're taking the name of Jesus out of prayers. I read last week that a congresswoman in, in, uh, in, the, um, in America, in their parliament, whatever you call that. Congress, that's it, yeah. I'm good with this stuff. Um, so she says that Islamophobia, because they mentioned the name of Jesus in prayers. She said that's Islamophobia. Unbelief is becoming a big problem. In America... They have now, the, the atheist organizations are now stopping Jesus being promoted in schools. You're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to bring anything into the school that has a Christian ethos to it. Coaches are not even allowed to pray with their team members anymore because of this stuff. And they are making headway on it. And they're making headway on it simply because of a letter that was sent to Jefferson, I believe, from a lady, and that which the, the religion should be separated from state. Which I think is a load of nonsense. Because if religion plays a big part of society, then it must play a good part of what you do with your laws. You look at parliament we have, the mother of all parliaments. All the laws set up through the Bible, many of them made through the Bible, and some of them still in place today. And a democracy that was brought about through the Bible. Unbelief is by far one of the biggest problems that they have. And here's the problem with unbelief. It brings us one major big problem for us. And you see in this, this piece of scripture that we read today, it's whenever Jesus walks out of the town. I find that the most saddest part of it all. I find that the hardest bit to accept because when Jesus walks out of the town, it seems nothing gets done because he wasn't accepted. <laughs> Biggest problem we have with unbelief is the fact that there's a day of judgment coming. It's a hard one that, you know. It's a hard one to take on board. When I tell you about my family, I look at my family members and I tell my brothers, I pray for them. I say, brothers, I pray for you all. I pray that you'll all come to faith in Jesus Christ because I want to be in heaven with you. When my mum died two years ago, we're in the hospital on the Friday night in the early hours of the Friday, uh, Saturday morning. I could hear her praying. And I leant down into her and I listened to her prayer. She was praying for us and she was saying, Lord, thank you for my boys. <coughs> Thank you for my boys. And I leant into her and I said, Mom, can I pray with you? Yes. In her vain voice. And I prayed with her and I said, Lord, restore my mom and restore her and bring her back. And she said, Yes, Nigel. Amen. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then you will say to those on the left, depart from me. Oh, that is by far the hardest piece of scripture you read. It is by far the hardest thing. Depart. You know when it talks about the parable with the sheep and the goats? Oh boy, I always find that so hard. People write God off, don't they? Unbelief, they write God off from the unbelief. And here Jesus is with his family, the very people who should have been supporting him, the very people who should believe in him, and they are saying, we don't believe in you, Jesus, come on, stop this. It's a nonsense. And the world is telling Christianity, we don't want you. We don't want you talking. Go into your churches, stay in your churches, don't bring it out onto the street. Liberty is being taken from the churches a great deal, and we don't realize it. Did you see the little man that was preaching out in London and they come and arrested him and they took the Bible off him? He says, don't take my Bible off me. A few weeks ago, he says, don't take my Bible and they snatched it out of his hand. The police snatched it out of his hand and he said, well, if you hadn't been saying things, uh, you know, and insulting people with racism, he said, you wouldn't be in this place. Apparently when preachers go onto the street in London, then Muslims come along and they complain, they ring the police and say, he's doing, he's being very bastard, he's being very racist. And apparently people were listening to him and he said he hadn't mentioned anything, racism, in any shape or form. I don't know. Wasn't there. But I watched this man being arrested. Unbelief is the biggest problem that we have. My colleagues in work, I always love getting an opportunity to talk to my colleagues in work. And one day this guy was on the, in the van with him and we pulled up to a, a Methodist church actually in Lurgan. And they had this poster. And the poster said about coming to faith in Christ. And I said, read that. And he read it. And he said, what do you want me to do now? And I said, I want you to give your life to, to the Lord. I'm not good enough. And I says, neither am I. Neither is anybody else. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. The hymn writer puts it brilliantly when she says, and there is a green hill far away. She said, there was no other good enough to pay the price. He only could unlock the gates and let us in. Unbelief. So what does that message mean to us today as a church? There's a lot of people out there and they don't believe. And we have to tell them. We've got to go out and see them. We've got to make an effort. The people around us. Can we evangelise the people around us? See, when I was on building sites, like I've told you before, I loved the opportunity of getting a bit of, a bit of evangelism in there and talking to people. I used to love that, especially lunchtime. We used to get some really good conversations going about the Lord. It's not easy, but it's something we should be doing. In the parable, as I said, of the sheep and the goats, Christ presented a sobering picture of the day of God's judgment. That's the biggest, biggest worry for me when I know there are people who are going to die on that. A few weeks ago, all the men went down to the assembly buildings in Belfast and we went to see Dr. Don Carson. And they had a t- um, questions and answer time, which I felt very interesting. Actually, keep me right on this one. I can't remember what the question was. But at one stage, the guy was talking about, um, should, they, should we preach more about hell? And which he gave his views on it and which he thought we shouldn't. And which Dr. Carson came back to the man and said, hold on a second. Are you trying to say that you're more compassionate than Jesus is? He said, Jesus talked about hell. And he said, that was important that he did. And he says, are you trying to tell me you're more compassionate than he is when you don't want to people, tell people about hell? It's right there for you in the piece of scripture behind us. It says the day is going to come 
And the one person who puts unbelief into everybody is Satan himself. No doubt about that. It's a sobering picture for Jesus and his family. And when you look at it, you think to yourself, oh my goodness, that family must be in bits. They must be really, really in bits. You think of the eternal punishment and all of that, and you think, oh good Lord, that's, that's really hard, that's, that's harsh. You look at that judgment, you can see it in Matthew 25, verse 46, and Revelations 14 and 10. You go through all that stuff, you look at it, I've read through it hundreds of times, I've preached on it many times, and many times I've come away thinking, Lord, please let somebody come to faith in that, that they don't get to that judgment day. I preached on it one Sunday morning and you know what? There was a guy who was really annoyed about it, really annoyed with me. And I told him, you know, one day you're going to stand before the Lord and if you're not saved, you're going to be standing before him. You're going to say, you know who I am? Lord, please don't send me to hell. I don't want to go there. I've suddenly realized I want to, I want to do something different. I want, to go, I want to go where you're going. But it's too late. Bernie's uncle, Uncle Albert, he was a great man. I loved him. He was a great fella. And one day he was telling me the story about um, a minister, a Methodist minister. And this Methodist minister was quite fierce in his preaching. He didn't mind telling people how it was. He said it as it should be. And he said there was a funeral and they were at the funeral of the grave, you know, and the grave was open and everybody was standing around it. Mostly all men, because in those days, it was only men went to the grave, say, when they were there doing the committal. And he said the minister was standing there with his Bible open and he looked around all the men. Silently he looked around everybody like this. And he said, you know what, guys? You see, when you get to this place, it's too late. He says, if you're in there and you haven't met with Jesus Christ, it's too late. He said it how it was. He said he was walking away from the graveside and a man was walking alongside him. Oh, he says, that minister made me think there now. Oh, he says, boy, he's put the fear of God right into me. Unbelief. Shocking. Really awful place. But what about Jesus and his family? What happened there with them? Incredibly, incredibly when you look at it, um, this verse here really says it all. Matthew chosen to replace Judas. Um, you can see here there was a great coming together because in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 and 14, they all came together. They all came back together in the one place and there they were praying together. The apostles returned to Jerusalem to the hill called the Mount of Olives on the Sabbath day. And believe it or not, on that day, they weren't only allowed to walk six miles. And anything over above that was considered as working. So you can only go so far. And they arrived to the upstairs to the room and they were staying. And present was Peter, John, Judas, Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, son of um, Alphaeus and, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, uh, prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Isn't that a lovely picture? His brothers and his mother and probably his sisters were all there too. And they all came together and they started to believe in Jesus. Reconciliation. That's what Jesus does. That's what Christianity does. It brings a wonderful, wonderful sense of coming together where people can be united. Yeah. We've gone through rough times in our church. But Jesus unites us. That's what unites everything we do. That's how we all come together. That's how we can make a difference. When we get out there with people who are hurting, then we can make a difference. 
People are feeling anxiety, depression. It breaks my heart to see people who go through that. It must be the hardest thing in the world. But I know there's a Jesus who can make a difference. I know Jesus can help people. I know Jesus can. In the darkest moments in my life, I know Jesus came to me. In the moments when I sat in tears and cried, Jesus was there. It's great when you can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not feeling good today. Feeling really bad today. And you can just feel God come around you. But you know what's even nicer? It's when the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the church you belong to, and they come around you and they're hugging you with their prayers. That's amazing. You know when somebody rings you up and says, I'm praying for you? They don't even know you're going through problems, but the Lord has spoken to them and they ring you and say, I'm praying for you. I don't know why, but I'm praying for you. Oh, boys, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Your family is your family. There's nothing you can do about that. That's what you've got. And, and you can, that's, that's what you have to do. That's what you live with them. Like I said, when my brothers and I get together, it's, it's mad. You know, it's crazy. Have good fun. We really enjoy ourselves and we have such fun. What a change in Jesus' family there was. They once felt embarrassed by him and now they worshipped him. They once pitied him and now they were praying with him. How about that? Cracking. Absolutely amazing. I want to finish off the message just by saying to you this. That when people say that Christianity is important in the world anymore... I think we've got to look at it from a different perspective. I remember somebody saying this to me one day in, in work. You know, you guys, your Christianity does all sorts of things and, you know, you're this and you're that and, you know, you, you do this and that and the other. And I said, them, hold on a second. The church goes out and they reach out to people who are lost. They go out to the, they have groups that they can go, that people are, in England, a, a lot of this happens. There are people who live in solitary confinement because they don't have any family and no friends and many of them live alone and never talk to people from one week to the next. Churches go and pick people like up and bring them to the church for dinner. If you look at Christianity, it's the biggest healthcare provider in the world. It's the biggest social service in the world. It's the biggest charitable giver in the world. Gosh, I can go on in this. Christianity does the most amazing stuff throughout the world and it loves people. It loves people, but unbelief is our biggest problem. The message today is this church. And I feel this is what God is saying to us. We've got to reach out to the, un, the unbelief out there. We've got to reach out to them in some way or form that we have to do this and tell them about Jesus. Jesus totally changes you, completely. He changes your heart, he changes you, he changes you as a person. And I believe God is going to change us as a people. We've got to be united with each other, completely. You have a problem with one another, talk about it and then pray over it and get over it. It's very important because Satan loves that stuff. Jesus hates it. God really hates that stuff. As a church, we need to be united. As a church, we need to go out and tell the world, Jesus loves you. Unbelief. Jesus' family, well, they didn't believe him and then they did and they sat and worshipped with him and they prayed with him and they had a most amazing time. And his brothers, by the way, they ended up becoming evangelists and missionaries. How about that? Incredible. The Lord's going to bless this church. I can feel it every time I walk through the doors. This I call the house. Um, this, this is the house of prayer. And this is a house of where people will be refurbed. People will be restored. Yeah. Really believe that? I really believe that.
when Merle and I came to this church, we could feel that. Unbelief is killing people out there and Satan loves it because he doesn't want people to be restored. He doesn't want them to be healed. But we can help them. Then we need to pray about that, don't we? Let's use that message today. Unbelief, let's go and reach for the people that need us most of all. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, Father, as we, we, as we think over the message that we have today, Lord, of unbelief, then, Lord, let us go out to the unbelief and bring them to the place, Lord, where they believe. There are people, Lord, who are hurting. There are people who need to be restored. There are Christians, Lord, who have walked away from you. I love the verse in the Bible that says, Bruised reed, Lord, you will not break. And, Lord, smoldering wicks you will never put out. Oh, Father, how about that? Lord, repair the bruised reed, Lord. Father, relight the wick. Let that light shine again for the Christian out there, Lord, who has got to that place. Perhaps there's somebody in this church today, Lord, and, and they've been suffering, Father, so much from unbelief. Then, Lord, we just pray over that right now. We pray against Satan, Lord, and what he's been trying to do there. Unite this church, Lord. Bless this church to go out and bless other people. <coughs> Father, we thank you for this house of prayer and this house of restoration. We pray now today, Lord, bless this church right now. Every person in this church, for those who are not with us today, Lord, where they are right now, will you bless them, Father? Bless them right now where they are and anoint them, Father, and, and, and just pray that you will touch them. Lord, as we praise now, let our praises reflect the, the very fact we believe in you, Father. Hallelujah. Amen.